And hey, welcome to Northridge Church, man. I can't tell you how honored and pumped that we are, you are here today. And I want to shout out to our campuses, Webster. We love you guys out in Webster online. We love you, Rochester. We love you. It is great to have each and every one of you. And you know what we love to say each and every week? Welcome home. And we genuinely desire that. It's our longing as a church that this place would feel like a family to you, a place where you can belong, a place where you can learn to believe, and a place where you can become more like Jesus Christ. And so thanks for joining us. Welcome home, and, and welcome to Northridge Church. And if you haven't been with us, maybe this is your first week just checking us out, or, or maybe you, you've missed a couple weeks. We're knee-deep in a series where we're kind of tackling maybe the hardest, most confusing, most intimidating book in your Bible. It's the final book. It's the book of Revelation. And, you know, we've been trying to kind of give people our goal in this series was not for you to know every single detail of the book, but to really give you handles as you approach the book, as you read it, to understand the timeline and the events unfolding. That way we can understand the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. And, you know, we are in this major segment, right? If you look at the outline, it's going to be behind me. The first five chapters of the book are the revelation of Christ, but we've been over the last couple of weeks in the major segment of the book of Revelation, chapter 6 all the way to chapter 19, where we've seen the judgment and the wrath of God that ultimately brings us to the end of the book, which is the glory of heaven that we're all longing for. But I don't know about you, but... When we read the last couple weeks, right, the, the seven seals and the seven trumpets, and we see God pouring out his wrath and his judgment, at times, it can make us feel a little bit uneasy. And one thing you need to understand about God's judgment is sometimes it comes directly from God, right? God is the source of his judgment. But a lot of times throughout the book of Revelation, God is the indirect source of his wrath and his judgment, where God actually used evil to destroy evil, and we'll see that today. But seeing this side of God in the book of Revelation can cause us to ask questions. Like, why does God seem so harsh? Why does it seem like God is bloodthirsty, this tyrant who is just pouring out his anger and his wrath on, on the world? And, and what we have to understand as we, we study the book of Revelation, I want you to understand two things as we kind of come to an end of God's judgment and get into the coming kingdom, is there's two things that I think we have to understand fundamentally about God pouring out his judgment and wrath. The first one is God is constantly providing a way out. Right, when we think about the wrath of God, what I love about God is, is really from cover to cover of the Bible, this is the storyline. This is the storyline of the gospel, the greatest news ever told, is that God gives us a way out of experiencing his wrath. Right, and that comes through Jesus. Through his blood shed on that cross and his resurrection, that's the theme of the Bible, the storyline of the Bible, that you and I, humanity is sinners, fallen short of God's standard, and because we are sinners, we're evil, means we deserve God's wrath, but God provided a way out through Jesus Christ. And what we notice in the pages of Revelation is as God is pouring out his wrath, what we've noticed is this word coming up over and over again, this word called interlude. And it's this break or this pause in God pouring out his wrath. Why? So that he could tell people about his son Jesus and he could offer them a way out of experiencing his wrath. And in the midst of God being a just God, a holy God, we still see his mercy and his grace all throughout the pages where he reveals his judgment on evil. 
And so God is constantly providing a way out, but maybe even more importantly, I think it's important as we understand the book of Revelation, the why behind God is, pour, why God is pouring out his judgment. You see, the purpose of his wrath, God's wrath, is so that his children could experience a world without evil. That's the goal, that's the hope for, for God in the book of Revelation as he brings his kingdom to earth. His, his longing is that his children wouldn't have to deal with the atrocities, the, the pain and the sorrow of that evil brings in the world. And many of us, when we look at God and we see the God of Revelation, or even sometimes the God of the Old Testament, we, we view God this way. This is the imagery we have. It's, it's this little kid with a, a magnifying glass, and he's torturing this ant with the, li with the light, right? He's like, <laughs> yeah. as he like, you know, sickly like tortures the ant, but doesn't kill the ant, and he's like, yeah, this is fun. And that's, honestly, that's how we see God sometimes, is this bloodthirsty tyrant who just cares about his glory. But I actually think that's the wrong picture of Revelation. Because I actually think we should see God as a dad, as a father. And what does this father want for his children? He just wants them to live in a world where evil doesn't exist. And isn't that what every parent wants? I'm a parent, many of you are grandparents, dads, moms, aunts, and uncles. Don't we just long for a world where we don't have to worry about our children dealing with evil and the pain that it brings? And that is who our God is. That's the story of Revelation, is this dad just longs for his children to live in a world where evil doesn't exist anymore. And we often forget why evil exists. God didn't bring it, we did. Humanity broke a perfect world that God created and all God is doing as he's pouring out his wrath and his judgment is fixing a problem that we created ourselves. And I think if we ever get the words of Revelation, maybe now over the last month, we've kind of felt this truth because we have seen evil peak its ugly head in our backyard. Right, in Buffalo, we saw someone who thought it was a great idea to pick up a gun and shoot people of a different race because he thought he was superior. We saw in Texas, where children were murdered just for going to school. We saw it in, in the hospital in Tulsa. We've seen evil peak its head and it's caused us probably to, to reflect and think about the words of Revelation. What do the saints cry out to God? They say, they call out in a loud voice, how long, God? How long do we have to wait until evil is destroyed? How long until you judge the earth and its inhabitants and the evil that exists? And that's all God wants. God wants for we as his children to live in a world where we don't have to deal with the pain and the sorrow and the devastation that evil brings. And so it's with that backdrop in mind that we're gonna see God begin the final stages of ridding the world of evil. And so if you got your Bibles, Revelation chapter 17. Revelation chapter 17, we're gonna be in chapter 17, 18, and chapter 19. I'd encourage you to take out the Northridge Church app. You can take notes along. And, and I'm just gonna warn you up front. I probably should have warned you all series long. Today's gonna be kind of a doozy. Okay, you, you laugh now, just wait, just wait. Because <laughs> we're gonna read some passages that are, are, are a little bit crazy, a little bit wild, and a little really hard to understand. 
And so that's coming from a guy who, who studies the Bible for his job. And so I'm just warning you up front, we're going to cover a lot of, of text today. It's going to feel like we're drinking from a fire hydrogen, but I believe the Spirit of God is going to open our eyes to the truth he has for us today. And so let's pick it up in Revelation chapter 17. It says this, one of the seven angels who had seven bowls came and said to me, so let's pause here real quick. So we find this angel, and this angel has seven bowls, not because he's serving a salad for his company, but because the seven bowls are actually a part of the judgment of God. And we've seen this, right? Because throughout Revelation, you see God pour out his wrath and his judgment in series of seven things, right? We started seven seals, the seven seals of God's judgment. We saw the seven trumpets of God's judgment. And here are the seven bowls of God's judgment. And we find them in chapters 15 and 16. And today, we're not going to dig a lot into these bowls of judgment. I'm going to walk you through them really quickly. But we're going to move past them pretty fast. And so the seven bowls of, of God's judgment, here they are. The first one, the first First bowl is on the land and it soars throughout the land. The second is on the sea and every sea turns to blood. The, the third bowl is similar to the second one where all the rivers turn to blood. The fourth is sun and scorching heat. The fifth bowl is the beast and darkness. The sixth bowl is the Euphrates dries up and Armageddon, the battle of Armageddon starts or begins. And the battle of Armageddon is this major war between evil and good. They wage war against each other. And the seventh bowl is the air and the atmosphere which brings world destruction. And so we've seen God's judgment being poured out through seals, through trumpets, and now through bowls. And what we're going to see in chapter 17 and chapter 18 and chapter 19 is God begin the journey of finalizing the destruction of evil. So let's pick it up right where we left off. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. And so the angel reveals to John, he's gonna show him the punishment that God is gonna pour out on this prostitute who sits by many waters. Now, a prostitute sitting by many waters, that imagery is just talking about the influence of evil all throughout the region, all throughout the world, because many waters, if you look at the globe, our globe is full of water. And what it's saying is the influence that evil has throughout the land. Verse two, it says this, here's the influence. With her, the prostitute, the kings of the earth committed adultery. And the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adultery. So you see the influence that she has, the evil that she is leaking all over the world. Then verse three, it says, then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and 10 horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She had a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and with the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. Listen, I warned you up front, okay? <laughs> Woo! We're in it, right? We're, we're in it, John has this vision and in this vision, he sees a beast, and on the beast's lap is this prostitute. And I get it, right? When you read this maybe on your own, you're like, well, I don't even know what the Bible is saying. Like, what is going on? I have no clue. But in, in order to understand this vision, we have to start by understanding the, the characters that, that, that are in this vision. And we see the beast, and we see this prostitute. And so let me introduce you to them. The beast we've already been introduced to, this is the Antichrist and his am empire. 
right? This is the leader of the great tribulation, the leader of evil, and we were introduced to him in the seven seals. The first seal was a white horseman that looked like Jesus, pretended to be Jesus, but was an imposter. And what was this white horseman bent on? He was bent on conquest. He wants to build his empire, grow his evil, so he can wage war against good. And so the beast is the antichrist, the leader of the movement and the empire. And then this prostitute or this woman sitting on his lap represents the literal and metaphorical city of Babylon. You see, what's interesting about the Bible is the Bible is a really a, a tale of two cities. There's the city of Jerusalem, which represents good and, and, and the worship of God, and then there's the city of Babylon, which represents everything that rejects God. And so this prostitute represents the city of Babylon, and Babylon is the world system that rejects God, lives in rebellion to God. And here's what's interesting. If you study the word Babylon in your Bible, it's mentioned 287 times. That's more than any other city in the Bible except one, the city of Jerusalem. And so there's this battle throughout your Bible of Babylon versus Jerusalem. In fact, Babylon was a a literal city on the Euphrates River. And in Genesis chapter 11, right after the flood where God destroys the earth and starts to build it back, Babylon becomes the seat of civilization that expressed organized hostility to God and his people. And so to a Jewish person, I love what one uh, scholar says. It says, Babylon, to them, the Jews, was the essence of all evil, the embodiment of cruelty, the foe of God's people, and the lasting type of sin, carnality, lust, and greed. And so this prostitute and this beast represent evil at its worst. Babylon is this evil system that pulls people away from God. And if if you were to put it in maybe modern day uh, language or a city in modern day, we could probably call Babylon Las Vegas, right? Because what is Las Vegas called? Sin City, right? And that's what Babylon was in the Bible. It was a city that represented sin and everything that went against God. And to show you how bad Babylon was, look how Revelation 18 describes Babylon in this woman. It says, she has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every impure spirit, haunt for every unclean bird, haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. And so John has this vision of the leader of the tribulation, the Antichrist, and this system of evil sitting on his lap. The vision continues. It says, I saw the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. The angel said to me, why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and the beast she rides, which has seven heads and ten horns. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and yet will come out of the abyss and go to its destruction. So here the angel is predicting the destruction of the beast or the Antichrist. The inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast because it once was, now is not, and yet will come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is 
is, and the other has not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain only for a little while. The beast who once was and now is not is the eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. Yet again, a prediction of the destruction of evil. Then the ten horns you saw are the ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. And so here's a lot of details, right? A lot of details. This angel describes the meaning of the vision that John has. And, and here's a warning I gave you in week one of this series, right? In Revelation, it's really easy to get bogged down into all the details, right? It can, it can actually pull us from the main point. In all of these details, here's the reality. Scholars throughout time have debated on their meaning, are still in debate today about what all this means. But the point is in verse 13. The angel makes his point about all that is happening. Look what he says in verse 13. He says, they have one purpose. That's the, the woman, the prostitute, and the kings. They have one purpose. They will give their power and authority to the beast or the antichrist. And so the purpose of this system of evil, Babylon, the, the, the prostitute and the kings, they have one purpose. It's to bring and build the beast's power and authority. The antichrist is using evil forces to do one thing, build his agenda, build his power, build his authority. And here's what he's doing, why? So he can wage war against good. So he can wage war against God. And this battle has already begun. The evil is battling good. And Revelation 14, one of my favorite verses in all of Revelation, it's so good. Look at what it says. It says they will wage war against the lamb. But come on, church, good news. The lamb will triumph over them. Amen. Why? Because he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. And with him will be called his chosen and faithful followers. So this Antichrist has this giant scheme and he's waging war against, against God and his army. The bad news is, is the Lamb of God will triumph over him. And the next couple verses, here's what's cool, is we get to see how that happens. The Bible shows us that God defeats evil in a really cool and a really unique way where actually God doesn't intervene, throw a lightning bolt and like boom, there it goes. God actually makes evil turn on evil. God uses evil to destroy evil. Let me show you verse 15. It says, then the angel said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute sits are people, multitudes, nations, and languages, right? So the, the prostitute who sits by many waters, it's talking about her influence over many multitudes, many peoples, many nations and languages. But look what happens. The beast or the antichrist and the 10 horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. Here's an awesome verse, verse 17. It says, for God has put into, the heart, into their hearts to accomplish his purpose. How crazy is that? That God is actually using evil to fulfill his purposes. So the next time we see on our newsfeed evil, just know that we serve a sovereign God who is in control and can take the worst of atrocities and turn them to good for his glory. Amen. And right here we see it, right? We see God having evil turn on itself to bring part of his kingdom come. It says, for God has put into the hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw in the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. 
And so here's what happens. The Antichrist, the leader of the movement, he turns on the woman sitting on his lap and he ruins her. And so this system of evil that lives in rebellion to God has now been destroyed. And in chapter 18, look what happens. An angel comes. It says, after this, I saw an angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. And with a mighty voice, he shouted, fallen. Fallen is Babylon the great. Remember, I told you, the Bible is a tale of two cities. Jerusalem, which represents good and God. And Babylon, which represents evil and rejection to God, and here's the bad news for Babylon, Jerusalem wins. Because Babylon has been destroyed. The Antichrist turns on the prostitute and kills, and so now the system of rejection to God has been defeated. And the great part is, God used evil to destroy evil. But the beast, the Antichrist still exists, we'll get to his destruction next week. But this angel comes and he, he announces Babylon has fallen, the system of evil has fallen, and there's this great celebration in heaven. It says rejoice over her, you heavens. Rejoice, you people of God. Rejoice, apostles and prophets, for God has judged her with the judgment she imposed on you. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, with such violence the great city of Babylon will be thrown down never to be found again. The music of the harpists and the musicians, pipers and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. No workers of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of a bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the world's important people. By your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. And here it is. In her was found the blood of prophets and of God's holy people, of all who have been slaughtered on the earth. Remember that verse, right? Because if you go back to the beginning of my message, what do the saints cry out who have lost their life for their faith? They cry out to God, how long must we wait? How long must we wait until you judge the inhabitants of the earth? And what does God tell them? He says, wait a little bit longer. But here's the truth, right here in Revelation chapter 18, the wait is over. Because God has fulfilled his promise. He has avenged their blood. And so he is faithful. He comes through. Look what Revelation 19, the celebration begins. It says, after this I heard what sounded like a roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. What has he done? He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. The wait is over, and again they shouted, hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And so Babylon, the evil system of society in our world has been defeated. And what's interesting is this was predicted. Right, if you go to the book of Daniel, remember when we read the book of Revelation, it is tethered to the Old Testament. And in Daniel chapter two, look what it says. This is in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and it will bring to an end, but it itself will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out from a mountain, not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. And who is that rock? His name is Jesus. 
And I get it, right? Woo! Take a breath. That's a lot. It's a lot to cover, and, and at times it's very difficult to understand. But here's what I want you to remember. Is here God, a loving father, longs for his children to live in a world without evil. And here in Revelation 17 and 18 and 19, God begins the journey of ridding the world of evil by destroying Babylon, by getting rid of the system of evil that pulls people astray from God. And again, it was a lot to take in, but here's the reality of the Bible. It never returns void. The Bible is alive and active, and here's what I know today. It's easy for us to be like, okay, I learned something new, sweet, I can leave and feel good about myself, but that's not the purpose of the Bible. It's not for us to show up on Sunday and be like, man, I learned something new, fill my head with knowledge, but that knowledge from God and his words is supposed to transform our hearts and renew our minds, that we would walk out of here differently, changed, renewed, refreshed. And so how does a passage as complex and as difficult and as confusing as that one was do that in me and in you today? And so I have two challenges for us as we reflect on God ridding the world of evil. The first one is a reminder for all of us that we can't be deceived by the world's systems. Can I tell you today, church, that there are a lot of things in society and in culture and in world that are buying your attention that are going after your mind and your heart and your head, and the goal is just to move you away from God, to pull you, to lead you astray. And that's what happened to people from this prostitute, right? Look what it says. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery. Adultery to God. They walked away from God, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Here's the reality that we have to understand. Babylon still exists today. And it's after you. It's after your eyes and your ears and your mind and your heart and it will do whatever it can to deceive you, to get you to walk away from God, give up on God, bail on God, doubt God. And can I ask you today, are you being deceived? Are you being intoxicated with the things of the world rather than the things of Christ? Who has your attention? your submission, what are you chasing after? Because I know I am so guilty of this and too many Christians are guilty of this, that we chase after things of this world, things that don't mean much for the sake of things that mean a whole lot. And today I would ask you, are you being deceived? Are you chasing after the things of God and the things of Christ or are you chasing worldly pleasures? Because when we chase after worldly pleasures, it causes us to remove ourselves from God. It causes us to deny God, to, to, to love the world instead of God. It causes us to indulge in sexual things rather than remaining sexually faithful to God. It causes us to love wealth over generosity, to care for ourselves instead of care for others. And so today, we have to recognize that in our society, evil, Babylon, still exists, and we have to do everything that we can to remain faithful to Christ as things try to pull us away. But the second thing I think we see in this storyline is that God will be victorious, and that gives us hope to endure suffering today and now. You know what I love about the book of Revelation? Is it gives us the end of the story. And I, I get it, right? For, for most of us as movie watchers, you never want the end of the story before you watch the story, right? Like it ruins the movie. 
But in this case, this saves us. Because we know, God has revealed to us how the story is written, how it ends. That, look what the Bible says. It says, the evil is gonna wage war against the lamb. Bad news for evil, the lamb will triumph over evil. That Jesus Christ will win the battle. And that gives us hope today. Hope that we can cling to no matter what circumstances we face. Because here's what I know. Evil exists today, and guess what that means? So does suffering. So does pain and sorrow. I would bet a lot of you were heartbroken as I was watching parents on the news mourning the loss of their children who just went to school. To see the brokenness in Ukraine from bombs and selfishness, the destruction and the the havoc that's being wreaked because why? Evil is prevalent in our society today. You can't ignore it, you can't deny it. It's everywhere. All you gotta do is turn your news feed on today and there's another shooting. There's something else and evil just constantly peeks its head and you know what evil does? It brings suffering and we all have to deal with it, navigate it. But can I tell you what, church? Good news. Because Jesus is victorious, it doesn't help us, it doesn't make make us avoid the suffering of today, but it gives us hope that our suffering will end someday. And what that does is it causes us to suffer well now. Because here's what I know. I know in my life and in your life, in a church as, as big as ours, there is suffering and pain and turmoil everywhere. I know we do a good job of trying to hide it, showing up to church pretending like we got everything together, like we're all good, but most of us, we aren't. And can I tell you, you found a safe place to suffer a safe place to be in pain, and it's okay, because we'll be there for you. Because we are a family. And I know some of you today, you're suffering. Maybe you're suffering with medical stuff. You got a diagnosis that you weren't prepared for, or you've got nagging pain that won't go away. Some of you are suffering relationally, because your marriage is hanging on by a thread. Some of you are are suffering because you haven't talked to your children in a while. There's a disconnect between you and your family. Some of you are suffering because a a business owner with you is clashed and it's called this divide in your relationship. Some of you are suffering because you are single and you want something different. Some of you are suffering because your boyfriend or your girlfriend, it's not going well. Some of you are suffering on somebody else's behalf. But suffering is everywhere. It's all over the place. And so what do, you, what do we do when we suffer? We cling to the hope that Jesus has conquered it. We cling to the hope that one day our Father has created a world that we won't have to suffer again. And so here's what we're gonna do. Two things this morning. I know when I suffer, the best thing I can do is worship because worship fixes my eyes on Jesus rather than my circumstances. And so today we're actually gonna close with a song. And I I love this song because it was written out of a place of great suffering. It's an old hymn called It Is Well. And the author who wrote this wrote it at at a place of intense suffering because he lost his wife and his children. And out of that place, he penned these words that it is well. 
even though I suffer. And for many of us, that's hard to, to even fathom. At a place of that dark, you could write the words, it is well, but he clung to the hope that Jesus will one day rid him of his suffering. And so we, we're gonna worship, we're gonna, in the midst of our circumstances, declare it is well because of who Jesus is and the victory he has given us. But we're also gonna carry each other's burdens in the midst of suffering. Right, and so right now you'll notice that our Webster campus and our Rochester campus, our prayer team is actually right now, you guys can go ahead and get up, they're gonna come to the front of our stage. We do this about once a month, and so our prayer team's at both of our campuses online. We have hosts ready to pray for you. And so as we sing this song, here's my offer to you. Here's our commitment to you as a church. We say welcome home each and every week. And I tell you, I want this place to feel like a family. And those aren't words to make you feel good. That's a promise. And that we work really hard at making that true. And part of the way we do that is when you suffer, we suffer. And we want to carry your burden. And so if you're here today, I don't care what's going on in your life. I don't care if it's pain, suffering, anxiety, worry, whatever it is. And you need someone to pray for you. We are ready to do it. If you just need a hug, man, come get a hug. If you need to come forward and pray on your own, that's good. We just want to be a place, a family that carries each other's burdens because evil exists and we long for the day where Jesus comes and he rids the world of evil. But right now, as it still exists, let's be there for each other. And so let's stand together at our campuses. We're going to sing the song, It Is Well. We're going to declare the truth over our suffering. But if you need prayer, our teams are ready and available for you. Let's sing together.